God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you are a God who uh, desires to be known and that you have revealed yourself through the scriptures and ultimately through Jesus. We think about all of the foolish things that have arisen from man trying to work his way up from an understanding of his own existence in the material world to a comprehension of things that are eternal and um, unseeable and spiritual. And we thank you that you are a God who has not left us to our own foolish devices, but that you have revealed yourself. And we thank you that what the world calls wise, you call foolishness. And we thank you that the cross, which the world calls foolishness, is the wisdom of God for the salvation of men. And we give you praise for that. And we thank you that from before the foundations of the world, you planned man's salvation to bring glory to Jesus Christ and express your love. And we just worship you for these things. Um, we thank you that you are a God who holds all things in your hand and that we can trust you and be dependent on you. Um, we think about what a wise and mighty God that you are, that you have counted every grain of sand in the oceans and you have numbered all of the stars in the heavens. You know every hair on our head and you care for us and we stand in awe of uh, just your absolute magnificence. And I pray that as we, get, we begin to look through the book of Ephesians together, um, that we would be just blown away by your love for us, like Paul says, that in love you have predestined us. And I, I pray that that would just cause our hearts to delight in you and to seek your face more faithfully and to draw close to you, to be humble before you. So bless our time together as we look at your word in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. Come on in. Sorry. No, don't be sorry. We're super excited that you're here. All right. Ephesians chapter 1. Um, I don't even know how much of Ephesians chapter 1 we'll get into today because what I want to do is kind of set the stage with some of the, the kind of background for the book and uh, just lay the groundwork for us to talk about Ephesians together. So the letter of Ephesians, anybody know who the author of Ephesians is? Paul, Paul right? And of course we would say that God is ultimately the author, right? Paul is the human who through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit recorded what God wants his people to know in this particular letter. And so we can say Paul is the author. Um, obviously, God is ultimately the author, but he identifies himself as the author twice in the letter. In, in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, obviously, it's right there, Paul. And he does it again in chapter 3, verse 1. Okay. Um, I'd be willing to bet that none of you care very much about uh, critical scholarship, but... Since about the Enlightenment, like the 1700s, secular, non-believing Bible scholars 
have basically done everything that they can to undermine any kind of confidence that people have in the Bible. And one of the things that they do is they go through books of the Bible and they basically say, oh, look, even though it says Paul's name here, you can't believe that Paul was actually the author and there's all these ridiculous reasons as to why. Um, <clears throat> Ephesians, even though it begins with Paul and, uh, and that he identifies himself again in chapter 3, verse 1, is no exception to this. Uh, critical scholars, liberal scholars have tried to scrub Paul as the author. Honestly, um, you know, their, their goal is to really destroy what is traditional and conservative and good and beautiful. So I'm really not even going to dignify, uh, I'm, I'm not even going to spend time on their arguments. I don't think it's even worth the time. Ephesians was indisputably accepted by the early church as a work of Paul, and there's no serious internal or external evidence to contradict that at all okay so paul the author of ephesians no question about that second the audience okay this is where things do get a little bit more complicated <clears throat> I'll, I'll hold off for one second while we get some more chairs out do we need more how many more we need we're good okay i love that we have to set up more chairs glad that you guys are all here all right, the audience for the book of Ephesians is? Ephesus. Right? The church in Ephesus, the Ephesians, the people living in Ephesus. Well, church tradition, as well as all of the major manuscript evidence, leads us to conclude that the letter was, in fact, written to the church in Ephesus, okay? And I wholeheartedly agree that this letter was written to the church in Ephesus. But there are a couple of peculiarities that I think are worth kind of pointing out. And I hope that this is kind of fun. I guess we don't need to spend a ton of time on it. I kind of geek out over these kinds of things. I hope it doesn't bore you. Um, you know, it is important for us as believers to understand that, like, the Bible that you're holding didn't just fall down out of heaven in the English translation that you have, right? There's a long history of people recording the text of Scripture, copying it down. Um, it's a very precise uh, historical science, I guess, if you will, if you will, meaning that as people have recorded it, they did it with precision. So there's no reason for us to question or doubt that we are actually reading God's word when we're reading an English translation. Um, but there's some complex history to the recording of these manuscripts. So I think it's worth us talking about so that if you find yourself on you know, some blog somewhere or on Facebook and somebody says something like, you can't believe the Bible because it was made by copies of copies of copies of copies. You know, that's the kind of thing they'll be like, oh, it's like the game of telephone, right? If we start over here with a phrase with Rick, by the time we get over here to Jonas, we're going to have something totally different. That's bogus. It's totally untrue. That's not how the Bible was recorded. But it's also not as simple as like, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter in English and you have it now 2,000 years later, okay? So um, here are some of those particularities. Uh, did this letter originally, was it originally intended for the church in Ephesus? I'm saying I think it was, but here are a couple things that are strange about this letter. Paul does not mention any personal acquaintances. Uh, if you read the book of Romans, when you get to chapter 16, chapter 16 has numerous names, many names of people that Paul had some kind of personal acquaintance to. 
and he does this in some of his other letters as well. But in this case, he does not mention any individuals by name, um, which is kind of strange because Paul actually spent quite a bit of time in Ephesus. He spent two years there, actually. Um, so then the other thing that's kind of strange is that this phrase in Ephesus um, to the saints who are in Ephesus in verse 1, that's actually most likely not original. It's absent from our best and most complete Greek manuscripts. So one of them is called Papyrus 46, P46. And then you've also got Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, which we mentioned last week. These are some of the um, most reliable, oldest, complete, not, not Papyrus 46, but Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. And so this is, a, this is a strange anomaly that this phrase in Ephesus would be missing from that, okay? And so these abnormal features have led some people to believe that um, Paul actually wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, but he didn't actually put this phrase in Ephesus. I guess I should have put it in up here. This is the part that's in question right here, in Ephesus. He didn't actually include this in the letter because uh, he actually intended this letter to be delivered first to Ephesus, but to be circulated among all of the churches in the region of Asia. And rather than putting these personal names and an address to the church, which would kind of maybe cause people to say, oh, well, this isn't for us. Um, he intentionally left that out so that as the church was reading this letter, they would feel it to be a very personal letter addressed to them. Okay. Um, and uh, Ephesus is actually the capital city of the province of Asia in the ancient Greek world. And so what you would have here is, is somebody would bring this letter to the church in the city and uh, most people wouldn't read it. They, they didn't have copy machines, right? So you'd have one copy and someone would stand up in front of the church and they would read the letter that Paul wrote to the church. And then maybe they would travel on and they would read it to another congregation or in another city, right? So uh, the, 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 the construction that you're looking here in Greek actually leaves open this opportunity for the person reading the letter to say, this is a letter from Paul. It's to the saints or the holy ones. And actually, maybe even insert in here who are in Colossae, who are in Laodicea, right? Um, we'll get into this a little bit more. But actually, I think this is, this is the position that I hold as well. So the letter was written to the church in Ephesus, but it had the intention in Paul's mind of being circulated more widely, okay? A couple other further interesting features of the letter. Um, so in the manuscripts that omit in an Ephesus. So the best manuscripts say this, to the holy ones or the saints who are also faithful in Jesus Christ. That, that's what the best manuscripts say. Okay, so they leave out this in Ephesus. But even in those manuscripts, do you know what it says at the top of the page? Pros Ephesus, which would mean to Ephesus. So even in the manuscripts where that is missing in the text, they still have at the top that it was addressed to the church in Ephesus, okay? Um, so clearly the letter was written to Ephesus. The title appears on all the manuscripts, even the ones that omit the phrase in verse one. So there's really no question about 
who it was authored to. Now, the Greek construction of verse 1 is, is odd. So again, it leaves open this opportunity for the orator reading the letter to insert kind of an, a, a whatever address here. And I've tried to show this to you actually in, in Greek. Um, so this is tois uh, hagias, to the holy ones. Usin is the verb to be, so those who are. This word kai is typically the word am, but it can also mean but. Uh, there's another Greek word for but, which is day. But kai also has the meaning of the word also, right? So the way your English translation is reading this is to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful. Pistis is faithful in Christ Jesus. But if this was omitted, it still works grammatically because you can say to the holy ones who are also faithful in Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's kind of what I've tried to represent for you over here. Um, the point is that the also, the chi there, is grammatically unnecessary. Right? You could actually leave that out entirely. And you could say to the holy ones who are faithful in Jesus Christ. But there's no doubt about this word being in the original manuscripts. Okay? So that's where kind of the difficulty uh, of this opening uh, address um, comes into play. Um, now, there's another really kind of interesting thing about this is um, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says to the Colossian church that they should read the letter that he sent to Laodicea. So is it possible, actually, that uh, if you look at a map of, the, of Asia, maybe in the back of your Bible, you have this kind of collection of cities here where you have Ephesus and you have Colossae and you have Laodicea. Is it possible then that maybe this letter went from Ephesus to Laodicea and in Colossians it's being referred to as the letter to the Laodiceans? Okay, that's possible. Um, in any case, the letter was most certainly originally written to the church in Ephesus. No doubt about that. But we can also say that it has this wider incalculable value to Christians, right? As you're reading this letter, you don't need to be in Ephesus. You don't need to be an Ephesian Christian to draw out from this letter all of the beautiful things that God intends for the church to know. General instructions and encouragement for believers, okay? Um, any questions about any of that? I realize this may be a little or, um, technical and maybe you're not into it at all, but any questions before I move on? Very interesting. It is interesting? Okay. Um, if you are really actually interested about in this kind of stuff, you can look up a Bible called the Net Bible, the New English Translation. It's entirely available for free online. It's done by Tyndale House out of um, Cambridge. And it's got all this really technical text criticism stuff in it. I have a printed hard copy of it. And it's kind of amazing because what you have is like, especially in the New Testament, you'll have like this much text and in really fine, really small print, like 80% of the page is just all of the, the technical translation notes and manuscript evidence and text criticism stuff. So if you do geek out about that kind of thing, you can look up the Net Bible for free online. 
All right, moving on. The letter was probably delivered by Tychicus or Tychicus. I don't know how you say that. Let's just go with Tychicus. Um, and the reason is if you look in chapter 6, verses 21 through 22, um, Tychicus is mentioned there. And he also probably delivered Paul's letter to the church in Colossae as well because he's mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. So there's no mail delivery in the ancient world, right? If you want to write a letter like this, you literally give it to somebody. He travels to the city. He delivers it. Maybe even he's the person who reads it. And in this case, he probably went on to other churches as well. Um, and maybe before he went, copies of it were made so that it could be circulated among the congregation in Ephesus. Concerning the church in Ephesus, Paul has quite a connection. So if you like, one of the things that's kind of cool to do is as you're reading the New Testament letters to try and figure out where they kind of fit in the book of Acts. Not all of them do, but some of them do. Um, so concerning Ephesus, you know, Paul actually has quite a connection. Paul first spent some time there during his second missionary journey. A lot of Bibles actually in the back will have a map that show you um, all of Paul's missionary journeys. So here's mine. It says in the top corner, the missionary journeys of Paul. And it'll show you all the cities he visited and roughly the time frames. And it'll lay out his first missionary journey, his second and his third. Well, Paul visited Ephesus during his second missionary journey. That's recorded in Acts chapter 18, verses 19 through 20. Um, and this was a strategic location for Paul to go visit Ephesus because Ephesus was a leading city center in the Roman Empire. I already mentioned that it was the capital of Asia. And so it was a, a really influential place for him to be able to sow the seeds of the gospel and potentially get them out, get, the, get that seed of the gospel out to a wider area. And this would be in modern day Turkey. So um, if you're curious what we're talking about, it would be the country of Turkey. Paul came back to Ephesus during his third missionary journey. And he actually ended up staying there, I said earlier, two years. It was th three years. And that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 20, verse 31. And scripture records for us in the book of Acts, uh, around that chapter 20, a number of different events that unfolded while Paul was in Ephesus. So Paul baptized a number of believers that were followers of John. Maybe you know that story. Um, Paul starts preaching his gospel, and, and there are these, um, I guess you could call them like proto-Christians. And they're hearing his message, and they're saying, well, we were disciples of John. And, or, I mean, I think at this point they are Christians, but they only know about the baptism of John. And so Paul ends up baptizing them, not, in, not, not with John the Baptist's baptism, which was a baptism uh, for the renunciation of sin, but a baptism into the death and resurrection of Christ, okay? Um, Paul also, while he was in Ephesus, taught daily in the hall of Tyrannus. He was originally teaching in the synagogue, and this is where we begin to see a separation between the Jews and the Christians, because Paul comes into Ephesus, he goes to the synagogue where the Jews are, he begins to tell them, hey, the Messiah that you've been waiting for is Jesus. And eventually that upsets them, and they throw him out of the synagogue, and so he goes into this place called the Hall of Tyrannus, and he preaches the gospel there. He also does a number of uh, extraordinary miracles while he's in Ephesus. 
Um, I think this is the place where it even says that people were like touching his uh, his handkerchief and they were being healed. So he does a number of healings and miracles. And then there was some really strange spiritual warfare that unfolds that we're told about. Um, these guys called the Seven Sons of Siva are Jewish exorcists and they're going about trying to cast out demons and then they encounter this one demon that says to them, uh, they're, they're trying to cast out demons in the name of Paul, I believe Paul and Jesus. And the demon basically says, uh, I've heard of Paul and of course I know Jesus, but who are you? And the demon beats these guys up and sends them running out into the street naked. That's recorded for us in Acts and that unfolds in Ephesus. And then several people who were practicing magic arts um, end up converting to Christianity and they bring all their magical books and spells and they have a big bonfire and they burn them all and it records that the books were all worth lots of money. And then there was also a very serious riot that swept through the city of Ephesus. Um, as Paul is preaching the gospel and people are converting, one of the major financial um, uh, Trades within Ephesus were these silversmiths who made idols for uh, Artemis, who had a big temple there. And as lots of people are converting to Christianity, uh, they stop buying these idols made out of silver, causing a big dip in the stock price of silver in Ephesus. And that upsets this silversmith guild, and they end up inciting a riot and chasing Paul out of town. Um, we also find recorded in Acts chapter 20 a really tender interaction between Paul and the elders of Ephesus. So uh, the story kind of shifts there in Acts 20 where Paul um, ends up making his way back to Jerusalem and uh, he gets, he's, he's, he's about to be arrested and imprisoned and so he gathers together the elders of Ephesus and uh, gives them kind of this encouragement and warning that after he departs, wolves and false teachers will come up and try and lead people astray. And it's kind of a beautiful pastoral moment there in the ministry of Paul. Any questions about any of that? Is Artemis the same as Diana? Is Artemis the same because, as Diana? Because they, yeah. I remember it? it if, okay, I was yes. making sure because in Ephesus, they, were, they said they're God's Diana. So. One's Greek, one's Roman. Yeah, right. that would be the distinction, right? Just make sure. Um... All right, any other questions on that or comments? No, that was in um, Athens. Yeah. yeah, Athens. Good question, though. I don't know off the top of my head what chapter that is. I, maybe 16, 17? 17. All right. As for the date of this letter, um, we know that Paul was a prisoner during the time of his writing of, F, of the letter to the Ephesians. Um, Paul speaks of his imprisonment in chapter 3, verse 1, and then chapter 4, verse 1, and then again in chapter 6, verse 20. And so... The writing then would take place sometime after Acts chapter 20. Paul spent two years in prison in Caesarea. Uh, that would have been roughly 
there's some debate about the different dates on this. I'm not going to get into that, but roughly A.D. 57 to 59. So Paul ends up first in prison in Caesarea. That's recorded in Acts chapter 24, uh, verse 27. And so it's possible the letter could have been written during that time while he's in, in prison in Caesarea. But I think it's probably more likely that it was written during his imprisonment in Rome between 60 and 62 A.D., and that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 28, verse 30, his time in prison in Rome. Um, and then most scholars would, would agree that Philippians and Colossians and Philemon were also all written during that, that time. Uh, and so you can break down kind of the different letters in the New Testament. They have the pastoral epistles, but these would then be called the prison epistles. So epistle is just a fancy word for a letter. Um, the purpose, this is where things really start to, I think, connect with us. So, you know, if you take a letter like um, Galatians, Galatians has a very clear purpose. Paul is writing the letter to the church in Galatia in order to clarify the gospel against false teachers who've come in saying that in order to really be a Christian, you must also keep the mosaic law okay or you have first and second corinthians the purpose of these letters you can tell paul is kind of responding to questions that they have sent him in a letter and uh, he's really dealing a lot with like church practice okay very clear purpose or you've got romans which i think its purpose is pretty clear to give a defense of the gospel and a very articulate theological understanding of what the gospel is, okay? Um, Ephesians doesn't seem to have quite that same level of clarity when it comes to its purpose. Paul doesn't seem to be attending to some specific issue in the church. At least internally, there's not a real clear, um, there's not a lot of clarity on an issue that the church is dealing with that he wants to address. But uh, there are some pieces we can maybe bring together to kind of draw out a, a, a framework for a purpose, okay? First, I mentioned that in Acts chapter 20, when Paul speaks to the elders in Ephesus, uh, particularly in verses 29 and 30, he warns them about false teachers. He warns them that after he departs from them, False teachers will arise internally from within the church, and they'll try and lead people astray. And then when you get to Revelation chapter 2, you see Jesus address the church in Ephesus. And um, we, sh we should look at that real quick. To, uh, turn to Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to just skip verse 1. It says basically these words are for Ephesus. Verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. Is this a 
uh, an encouragement, a fulfillment of Paul's warning that actually the church came through in Ephesus and did what Paul taught them to do, which is to reject false teachers. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But then here comes the warning. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Okay? So we can, I think, reasonably conclude that in guarding against false doctrine, the church in Ephesus had let their their love for Jesus grow cold. And uh, that's the rebuke then that we see. Look, can I absolutely prove this conclusively? No, but I think you see this tendency. Um, if, you, if you drift towards lovey-dovey, embrace everyone, you tend to give up sound doctrine. And if you become hyper-focused on sound doctrine, you can also become very cold and hard, right? I don't think that has to happen, but I think there's a temptation connected to each of those um uh, potential commitments. Um, and isn't that also often just kind of how life goes? When we're guarding against some issue in our life here and our eyes are directed that way, what happens? Something kind of tends to sneak in the back, right? Um, if you're, I don't know, I'll just make something up. If, you're, if, you're, if you realize I'm a prideful person and so I'm really gonna focus on being humble, then maybe sneaking in the back door comes greed. Right, because it's it, we're human. We only have so much attention to give to uh, to walking in uprightness. Now, I'll further support my claim with this in First Timothy chapter one, verse five. If you want to look at First Timothy, Paul's writing to Timothy, his disciple, and he's writing to Timothy where in Ephesus. And what does he say in verse five? The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere heart. So I'm making the argument here that one of the major themes or purpose of Ephesians is love. And let me kind of give you a very brief um, overview of the letter. Uh, Ephesians opens with a theolo theological discourse on um, Paul or on God's sorry God's electing love. Uh, that's where we're gonna go, kind of in this first chapter here. Man, I can't talk and turn the pages of my Bible at the same time. So Paul's going to begin by speaking about God's love for us, right? In love, God predestined us. Um, central to the letter is Paul's wonderful prayer here in Ephesians 3 that I really encourage you to become familiar with. In verse 17 of chapter, did I say verse 3? I meant chapter 3 if I said verse 3. Uh, in verse 17 um, of chapter 3, Paul prays for the church that they would be rooted and grounded in love. He speaks about Christian unity in chapter 4 that flows out of love. He deals with the love between a husband and wife in chapter 5. And he points out how 
that is a reflection of Christ's love for the church. Actually, the other way around. God loves his church, and therefore marriage reflects God's love for his people. And then the letter concludes by speaking about love as well. In chapter 6, verses 23 through 24, Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Isn't this kind of interesting when you factor in uh, Revelation chapter 2 in particular? Okay, furthermore, if you do some looking into Paul's use of the word love, particularly the word agape, then we find that one-sixth of all of Paul's usage of the word agape, almost one-sixth, are found in Ephesians which is a lot when you consider everything that Paul wrote. Um, and I'm talking about both noun and verb, okay? I'm not, I'm not talking, so agapao and agape. Um, so I would say that it seems the general purpose or kind of the general theme of the letter is to encourage Christians in love. I guess that's, um, yeah. Um, Paul talks so much about love in Ephesians and um, in, in a revelation, I mean, that was their warning. You see, that was their warning yeah. Christ gave to the church was yeah. that they left the first love. So yeah. I guess it would only fit. So I would encourage you as we kind of read through Ephesians together to keep an eye out for that that theme, that word. Yeah. yeah I was just going to point out that uh, maybe a secondary theme or co-primary theme would be uh, uh, just establishing them in sound doctrine. So the reason I point this out is that um, you know, it basically depends what's your timeline in the book of Revelation, right? If you see it at the 95 AD, well, that means they have had 30 years to grow cold in their love. Sure. Perhaps they were, he says, your first love. So they had love, um, but then by the time Revelation is written, uh, it's really not where they measure. Um, so perhaps the, another way to see the theme, which could be, you know, either first or full second or is to see what he seems to point out that they don't have. So in chapter 4, it says um, he gives the teachers, uh, verse 14, so that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of, wind of doctrine. Uh, so it seems that it says here that they were carried about by all those false yeah. teachings or they were just not established in the faith. And... Um, he doesn't say specifically here that they were not having love, but he does mention it a lot. So yeah. Maybe, well, you know, the, the, next verse, the next verse, though, brings these things together in a really right. powerful way, rather speaking the truth in love. Right. And, uh, I, I mean, this is, this is super helpful because theology done right leads to love. Yeah. Right? If you are thinking right about God, theology is the study of God. If you're thinking right about God, then the natural outcome of that is that you would love him. And out of love for God then flows love for others, right? So we really shouldn't even think about these as two different things. Um, you know, loving God is going to want you is going to lead you to want to know Him, and that's theology. And doing theology right is going to lead you to want to love Him, right? Um, so, 
that I, I think that fits in perfectly, um, and I appreciate you bringing that in to the discourse. Any other thoughts? All right, well, that's kind of the backdrop. It actually went faster than I thought, so let's get into some of the text here. Um, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take a pause there. How is it that Paul can say that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God? Anyone? down on the road to Damascus and, and told him what he would show him all that he must do for us. Yeah. yeah, so there's no debate about this. It is literally recorded for us in Acts, and I would encourage you to actually turn there. <laughs> Acts chapter 9. You know, these days, there are some churches where basically pastors or church leaders call themselves apostles. Uh, well, to be an apostle... You had to literally be called by Christ himself. Um, in fact, the Gospels even record that Jesus took from among his disciples. Is it Luke that says this or Mark? That Jesus took from among his disciples 12 and he called them apostles. So an apostle was a particular anointing and a particular, uh, a particular call. Um, and I would add, in addition to that, you had to actually see the resurrected Lord Jesus in order to be an apostle. So Paul's not just throwing this word around here. We've got Acts chapter 9, verses 15 through 16. If you're looking at it, it says, But the Lord said to him, this is God speaking to Ananias, who's a prophet, uh, Go. For he, that's Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Okay, so not only did Paul hear it out of the mouth of Jesus, but others heard it out of the mouth of Jesus to confirm his calling as an apostle. Okay? Um... So when people today say that God has called them to something, um, I think what they're doing is they're placing a kind of divine authority upon something that they're doing in their life that is, I'm going to go so far as to say questionable. Um, if you do a real careful study of this idea called like, what are we called to do as Christians? You won't find support for the kinds of things that people say. Um, people will say things like, well, I, felt, I really felt called to go into business. Or I felt called to go into ministry. Or I felt called to be a missionary. I actually don't think you can support that kind of language from Scripture. Um, what the Bible says is that we're called to be holy. Or we are called to follow Jesus or we're called out of the darkness and into the light um, certainly when Paul uses this word 
he is speaking about an authority that he has that you can't match when you say, I felt called by God. Does that make sense? Because what you're dealing with is some kind of subjective feeling. What Paul is referring to is an objective declaration out of the mouth of Jesus. Those are two very different things. That might be a shocking statement. Anybody want to speak in response to that? Uh, what would be the correct then statement? Um, because I think there are times where maybe as you go about life, there are certain things that maybe are impressed into, and you pray about it, and then maybe you check with other um, believers. Yeah. And then, of course, things align to the word of God. Yeah, and it's hard to get around speaking about this in some way, right? And sometimes language is kind of imprecise, but I think we should try to be precise when possible. I would say two things. I think it's probably appropriate for us to say something like, you know, I felt, I felt like God was leading me this way. Because you're acknowledging that it's a feeling and somebody could respond and say, well, maybe you're wrong. That's possible, right? Because what you're dealing with is a subjective feeling. So to say, I felt like God was leading me this direction, I think that that's probably okay. Again, as long as you're willing to receive from other people that you could be wrong. And we, here we have to distinguish between what God has objectively said believers must do and what is an open area of freedom for us as believers, right? So, uh, you know, I shouldn't say something like, well, I feel led to love my wife. No, no, no. I am commanded to love my wife and therefore I must do that. But I could say something like, I felt led to move to Maricopa and start a church. Um, I did it. Why did I do it? Well, really, because I wanted to. So I think that that's okay. So if, you know, when I'm counseling people, and maybe you've heard me say this before, because I repeat myself, I have like eight things that I say, and I just say them over and over and over again. Um, but when I'm counseling people, when it comes to the will of God, I would say that the will of God is love God and do what you want, right? We were actually talking about this in the Monday Night Men's Group. Uh, I went and hung out with those guys a couple weeks ago. And there's a verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, I think verse 14. I can look it up if you need me to. But it says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. So this is God's will. This is what you are called to do. And outside of what is spelled out in here, you have freedom. And so I think you can say things like, I want to do this. Um, and that's perfectly okay. Uh, you know, as long as it's within love for God, which is obedience to his word. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah and, you know, and we're gifted. So sure. you know, if, if, if we're gifted to teach, uh, uh, when we just uh, obey that, that the gift that we've been given, it's good. we mail God in the gift. Yeah. Uh, so it's not really a calling, it's a gift. Yeah. Uh, which we won't be able to do unless God wants us to, do, to uh, start with. Yeah, the gift. That's good. That's exactly what I wanted to pronounce on as well. So, First uh, <coughs> Corinthians twelve, and uh, where is the verse? 
it. But it basically says, the Spirit gives, it's right here, verse 11, but one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So then it says, uh, Paul, an apostle by the will of God. And in chapter 4, he's about to say, Christ gave gifts, and it starts with the apostles, right? So yeah. he's saying that's a gift, and it's uh, the will of God, and, and therefore, well, you should submit. Yes, and I would add to that, like, if, if it is clear that you have been given some gift for the good of the body of Christ, then it is God's will that you use that gift, right? But what I want to caution against, and thank you for that input as well, guys, is this idea of us rubber stamping things that we want to do by saying, I feel called by God to do this, right? I mean, I've interacted with pastors that have no pastors that have no business being in ministry, but you can't touch them because they say, well, God put this calling on my life, right? Um, no, that's not how this works. You don't get to be called to do something that you want to do as if it's authorized by God when clearly your conduct is contrary to what God would authorize. Does that make sense? So just, just think about this. Um, yeah. Um, I, I kind of feel like, especially to, in today's world and without being interested, uh, the word love is kind of like washy washy now. And so if you go and say to somebody, like, love God and do whatever you want, um, well, there are some great women I know that would say that they love God with all their heart and they, they are pastors, right? Um, and uh, so whenever you put the word love, because it's not something that you can see, uh, if you just stay there, you know, yeah. and you don't explain it to them what love is uh, really in action, then you can you can put whatever you want. Actually, if you don't if you don't also put the word submission to the word and some doctrine, I don't know, like. Um. Yeah, and. Um. I, I like to say it that way to be a little bit shocking, to, to, to kind of intentionally make it very simple. But when I'm counseling people in this area, I do define love because Jesus defines it, right? Um, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commands, obey my commands, right? So then what does it mean to love Jesus? It means to do everything that's written in the word. Um, so this is not a free-for-all, right? I can't be like, well, love God and do what I want, so I'm going to go have an affair with this woman over here. No, because the Bible forbids that. So that's not obedience, so it's not love. Does that make sense? But like, should I work for company A or company B? Should I live in this city or that city? Should I have cereal for breakfast or toast? Like, pick right? Um, you're okay. That's okay. Because I, I think some people feel really like, well, if I make a bad decision, right? If I do something that God is, it's outside of his will, right? And I eat the cereal and then I get a stomachache later, God's punishing me because I didn't pick the toast, which was really what he wanted, right? It's, it's absurd. Um, and, and I'm making it absurd, but there are people who live with that kind of fear and, and they're, they're kind of paralyzed by it. Yeah. I have a question because I've heard a term like um, apostles with a capital A and apostles with a lowercase 
Yeah, so this Right, so this is the workaround and they, they get that basically from Ephesians chapter 4, right? Um, verse uh, 11 And God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What they say is, look, the, the, uh, there's an office of apostle in the church. Not big A. Those were the guys that were you know, called by Jesus and they saw the resurrected Lord, but God intended for the rest of the church this little A apostle. And I would actually say there might be a kind of gift of apostleship, which would I would consider that kind of a gift of like church planting. I don't have a gift like that. Like I don't want to go plant more churches. I want to shepherd Maricopa Springs. But I planted Maricopa Springs. But I so there might be room for making some kind of argument of like a gift of apostleship. And yeah, so then maybe a little A kind of thing. But it, it would be a, it would be a gift and not not the same category of which Paul is saying he was called by God to be an apostle. Like one way to say is like apostle means sent one. And so the big A's are sent by Jesus Christ. And there you so go, that's good. The little A's are sent by a church, say, like a missionary or something. They're still preaching God's word, but they were sent by, you know, I'm an apostle of the Springs to yes. tell you about Jesus Christ. They, they sent me. That's great. That's a great distinction. And so then that's where I would say there's a difference between the office and the gifting. Do you mind if I share a different view? Sure. Okay. So basically in chapter 2, in verse 9. As long as you understand that my view is the right one. There's only one. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted. Where? Where are we looking? Okay, so if, if someone uses chapter 4, verse 7 and following to say that, you know, they are apostles today, but there is a concern there because in chapter 2, verse 19, uh, it tells us about the very same apostles and prophets that are listed in chapter 4. And it says this, starting in verse 20, it's talking about the church. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So here it is saying that the foundation of the church is the apostle and the prophet, and Jesus Christ is the key piece, the center cornerstone. Now if you look at chapter 3, uh, it tells us some unique things that these apostles and prophets were able to do and able to know. <coughs> it's talking about the mysteries of the new covenant and the gospel. Verse 4 and verse 5 it says, those mysteries, those revelations, which in other ages were not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So basically, the view that um, I present here that I, I believe is uh, um, another view to consider is that the apostles and the prophets were unique people who had received the uh, revelations of the new covenant, the new testament, and they wrote it, and that's the that's the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ, um, and uh, and the foundation of the building is built only once, and then you don't lay the foundation again on the twenty-first uh, story. So the foundation has been laid in the first century by the apostles and the prophets. Today we no longer have those gifts because the foundation of the church has been laid, and we already have those mysteries once and for all in the New Testament. 
And so nobody is an apostle or a prophet in my view. But, but I'm defining them as having special revelations and everything, just like I see them. So I actually don't know that that's different than what we've been saying. I think I think we would I would agree with that. But but this idea of like there are still those who are sent by the church to go take the gospel to particular places. I guess if you want to use a different word, but apostle seems to work because it does mean sent one. Um, but I would agree with you that the era of apostleship closed, done. Is that kind of what you're saying? So I would say that the apostles uh, and the prophets were the first ministers to establish the first church, the universal church. And then the uh, pastors and the evangelists, they, they basically replaced them. So the, they are no longer uh, apostles, but they are the evangelists who go and plant churches. And then they are no longer prophets who were mainly in churches like we see in 1 Corinthians 14, teaching the people about things they were receiving in their head because they had no Bible yet and with the New Covenant. And today we have the pastors who do that. So uh, it sounds like we're not we're not disagreeing about a function, but about verbiage. Because right. word evangelist, I'm I'm fine with that. But basically, people who claim to be apostles today, they go they go wide on yeah. things that right. we don't approve like, yes. at all. Yes. Yes. I just want to like bounce on what you were saying, guys. That because of uh, what's happening today, using the word uh, as we define it right now, like little apostle in the sense that sent. Uh, and um, uh, planter of church planters or whatever, and using the word apostle wouldn't be um, wise probably because of what you were saying, like when you were talking about calling. And uh, so the verbiage sometimes is important. It's better to be as clear as possible to repeat what you were saying. So maybe using this word with some people wouldn't be a wise decision. Yes, yes. Like yeah, I don't. Yeah, I would agree with you. I don't. I. I wouldn't. I would prefer the word evangelist. Um, but uh, yeah, because I think that there is a lot of baggage, unfortunately, connected with this. And certainly, when we're talking about Paul's apostleship, we are dealing with a very unique thing. Okay. And so let me just come back to this kind of big point here is that what Paul is talking about is unique. Um, God's will for his life is objectively revealed to him and to others and to us in the text of Scripture. Okay, Um, so the emphasis of God's will then needs to be on the objectively revealed will of God, which I would say is the commands of Scripture. Okay. Um, man, and we're going to actually talk about this a little bit in my sermon today <laughs> because uh, Peter is going to tell slaves, essentially, that God has called them to their slavery. How's that for a calling? I have yet to encounter anybody who's like, yeah, I just felt like God was calling me into slavery. Maybe St. Patrick, right? Isn't that kind of his story? Okay. Uh let me go just a little bit further. I think we can finish out um, this. Well, I'll, I'll finish out at least the saints. Um, so the word saints here is literally holy ones, hagios. Um, it's not. It's not what you might think of with like Catholicism, right? Where they say something like Saint Peter or Saint Paul. Um, The biblical idea of sainthood, I guess you could say, is everyone who has been perfected through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, 
right? The fact of the matter is you are a saint, not because of your righteousness, but because in the cross, Christ paid for your sins, atoned for your sins, and has made you holy in the eyes of God by virtue of his sacrifice. Um, so I, I actually kind of like the word, the translation holy ones, because I think the word saints is also kind of a word with some baggage attached to it at this point. But it reminds us of our identity in Christ. Uh, yes, you're still a sinner, right? Like you are not yet perfected. You're not yet glorified. And yet uh, the truth is you are objectively made holy by virtue of what Christ finished on the cross. Um, so our pursuit of holiness then, it's not our effort to be something that we are not. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like in trying to be like Jesus, you're like a human trying to be like a fish or something like that? It's, it's actually not that. When you sin, you are doing what is contrary to now your new nature in Christ. Um, and so I think that should actually encourage us because Pete, uh, Paul is, is willing to refer to these people as saints, as holy ones. What a beautiful encouragement. Um, and so we're being transformed daily through, through sanctification, through God's love, through the indwelling spirit, through participation in the church, through the study of God's word. We are being transformed more fully into what we are. Um, and then faithful in Jesus Christ, right? Who are also faithful in Jesus Christ. Um, why are you faithful in Christ? Because we love him? That's a great answer. I would actually say because he loves you, right? We are faithful in Christ, not because we're faithful people, but because Christ, our Savior, is faithful. Um, and so, again, that should be a wonderful encouragement to us. And then the benefit of this new identity that we are saints, what does that, in what way does that benefit us? Well, we have from God grace and peace. Peace with God because we're no longer his enemies. Peace in the world because he's sovereign king and he's over all of it. Um, peace even relationally with our brothers and sisters in Christ because we're united by him. And then grace. Grace not only as the forgiveness of past sins that we have done, but grace that daily sustains us in this identity as holy ones. All right. We'll close it there. Anybody want the last, last word? Final thoughts? Well, I hope this was a good start to Ephesians. Lots more to come. Let me pray. God, we thank you that we have been given grace and also therefore peace. We thank you that we are your holy ones because of what Christ has done for us. And I pray that we would live in accordance with that identity. We thank you for this letter, Ephesians, and its emphasis on thinking rightly about God and, and love and loving you and from our love for you love that flows to others. So I pray that as we study this letter together, that it would increase our love for you and our love for 
our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Amen.